I'm Gerhard Lazu, and you are listening to ShipIt.show, a podcast about ops, infrastructure, and clustered. One of our listeners, Andrew Welker, suggested that we talk about clustered. So a few hours before David Flanagan was about to do his workshop at Container Days, we recorded this episode. We talked about all the weird and wonderful Kubernetes debugging sessions on Clustered, a YouTube playlist with 43 videos and counting. We then talked about Raw Code Academy and we finished with conferences. Good thing we did, because David almost forgot about Cube Huddle, the conference that he's co-organizing next week. I look forward to talking at it. No, seriously, check it out at cubehuddle.com. Big thanks to our partners Fastly and Fly. This MP3 is served with minimal latency from the Fastly Edge location, which is closest to you. Our app and database run on fly.io because it keeps things simple. This episode is brought to you by Sentry. Build better software faster, diagnose, fix, and optimize the performance of your code. More than a million developers in 68,000 organizations already use Sentry, and that includes us. Here's the easiest way to try Sentry. Head at sentry.io slash demo slash sandbox. That is a fully functional version of Sentry that you can poke at. And best of all, our listeners get the team plan for free for three months. Head to Sentry.io and use the code SHIPIT when you sign up again. Sentry.io and use the code SHIPIT. We are going to ship in three, two, one. David, welcome to Ship It. You're back. I am. I'm very excited to be back. I love your show. I love talking to you. So yeah, thank you for inviting me back again. Do you like just talking on Ship It or do you also like listening to Ship It? That's something very interesting for me personally. Yeah, I actually, I have the Changelog Master Feed on my Overcast app and I I listen to pretty much everything. Um, I think all the content is is great. I listen to Ship It, I listen to JS Party, GoTime, the whole shebang. Okay, last memorable episode that you listened to from the whole ChangeLog network. Which one was it? That's a tough question. The one that you enjoy the most then? (laughs) I'm not sure. I've I've got conference fog on my brain, so like nothing is even popping into my mind. Right. Okay, I forgot about that, actually. You're right. See, I was very inconsiderate of me. So you've been enjoying yourself for a few days in Hamburg at the container days. That was September 5th and 7th. And conference fog. How can I forget? How many conversations did you have at this conference? I have lost track. There were two pretty packed days. You're just constantly having conversations. You know, there's a lot of people here. I think container days must be around 600. It could be more, it could be less, but it it feels like a 600 person conference. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just been great session after great session. So there's been a lot of conversations, a lot of Kubernetes, a lot of containers. And of course, I do a lot of content in that ecosystem. So people like to come up and say hello and uh, talk about clusters and, and Pulumi and stuff like that. So I've had probably north of 100 conversations. And it's been great. It's just it's great to get feedback from people, see what they're doing as well, because that's stuff that I can take and apply to our Pulumi product roadmap, but also what I'm doing with YouTube and try and produce more content to answer more of these questions. So it has been full on, but it is always enjoyable. Yeah. Wow, that is a pro right there. Like my last one was 50 and that felt too much. If you can push a hundred, oh my goodness me. Okay. I like you don't remember what you had for breakfast yesterday morning or even this morning. Never mind, which was your like like last favorite changelog episode. So sorry about that. That was very inconsiderate of me. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's just beer, right? So maybe. I don't know. It's Hamburg. <laughs> what did you have for breakfast, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't ate breakfast, to be honest. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a breakfast eater. I, I just wait for lunch. I don't know why. I've just always gotten into the habit of just getting up, having, like, I, I drink four four coffees in the morning, and that'll do me, and then I'll have something at lunch. So I see. There's more choice for lunch, I'm sure. <laughs> more, better choice as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm in Hamburg, and, uh, you know, 
there's a lot of kebab shops and uh, the people that I've been meeting have been telling me about their favorite kebab shops and what I should order. So I, I've, I've felt a duty to, to go and, and sample the local kebabs and it's um, been nice. And the local beers, of course. Very important. Very important. So going back to the conference and the sessions, uh, did you speak by any chance? I did not speak. I'm here to do a workshop, which is in a few hours from now. So I meant I was actually, I think that's why I was able to have so many conversations. I didn't have to go and hide in a corner and kind of focus on my content and my talk and be prepared. I was able just to kind of navigate, chat. I, I even went through all the sponsor booths, just talking to people and being like, hey, tell me what you're up to. And uh, of course, talking to the people that were given talks and trying to ask questions. And it just leads to, to lots of conversations. And, and I wouldn't have been able to do that if I was given a talk as well. So that's been quite a nice perk of this event. And I didn't have that, that pressure and I had to isolate and, and focus and prepare. Although, of course, I have a workshop now and instead of preparing, I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you. But it'll, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. You're relaxing, okay? You're relaxing, you're taking your mind off it. <laughs> <laughs> so that when you go there, you'll just, you know, just go nice and smooth because you're not stressing about it. Yeah, you know what? When it comes to Kubernetes now, I don't think I get stressed anymore, um, especially for this workshop where I've already broken the six clusters and I'm just giving them to people and trying to help them learn about the deepest, darkest parts of Kubernetes and, and kind of take them through that journey. Like, you know, I know this content so well that I, I, I'll be good. So. so this episode is coming out after your workshop. So I think it's safe to talk about all the ways in which the clusters are broken so we're not like, you know, <laughs> we're not helping anyone by talking about this. Uh, this episode will come out, I think, end of September. So a few weeks from today. So can you tell us more about the workshop? Like what do you have prepared for people? See, now I'm going to have to check my notes. Uh, so there are six broken clusters and I'm doing things differently this time as well. So normally what I would do with these workshops is I would try and have them run a Minikube cluster locally, and then I give them like a magical URL that applies all the breaks to the clusters on their local machine. What I've found delivering that at conferences is you are 100% at the mercy of the Wi-Fi in the venue. And that sometimes works and it sometimes doesn't. But with a lot of these images coming from Docker Hub, which now has rather strict rate limiting based on the IP address, when you've got 30 or 40 people pulling down the same images in quick succession multiple times, it doesn't work. So for this clustered workshop, I'm actually working with instruct.com. Do you know instruct? No. No. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> all right. Okay. That's all right. Uh, instruct.com is like an online learning platform. They basically, you write some scripts and some YAML files and people can go to a web page and it spins up the environment for them and they get a terminal and they get like a browser tab to the app and all this kind of thing. So it allows me to completely automate the entire provision of the cluster. Mm -hmm. uh, and then all the people in the workshop are going to have to do is come along and go to the URL and they get the cluster and they can just start debugging right away. And then the only Wi-Fi I really need is for them to do a very simple web-based SSH connection to the machine. So I'm hoping it's going to work much, much better. And um, this is the first time we're doing it, but I'm, I'm quite excited. I've got six broken clusters. Um, I've made some of them uh, beginner friendly. I'm going to kind of guide them through, uh, but there are a couple of particularly mean ones as well. So, mm. <laughs> um, Okay. So it goes from everything from very easy to impossible, maybe impossible to solve. I hope not impossible. I hope I've not pushed it that much. But I do require people to have, uh, you know, it's not just Kubernetes knowledge that you need on clusters. You need a very strong foundational Linux knowledge as well because these are kubeadmin clusters and misconfiguration on the Linux host can lead to serious problems in your Kubernetes cluster. And I want to be able to expose that. Some of the breaks also target the control plane. So they're not even going to be able to run kube control commands, which means they're going to have to get into, all oh, right, how does a Kubernetes cluster even work? Like, um, a lot of people don't know that when you run kubedm, everything is run in a container via something called a matter pod or a static manifest that delivers to the matter pod. So they might just be like, uh, this is hard, but they will learn an awful lot. And uh, I am going to guide them through it as well. I'm not just going to give them the clusters and say, good luck, because that would be harsh. So, But it's, it's nice, yeah. I'm suspecting that this is your way of checking how much attention have people been paying your clustered series and if people have been watching them they'll breeze through this is that it yes there is no new breaks mm -hmm. these are all breaks on previous 
episodes. So if, if people have been attentive and paying attention, they will know. But one of the things uh, that I always find really interesting about Custom is we're 43-ish episodes in now. And we have had repeat breaks, of course, because the people that join me on Clusters haven't watched all the Clusters. You know, they've maybe seen one or two to get an idea of the format. Um, so repeat breaks are inevitable. But what I find fascinating is that they're all debugged in very different ways, depending on the experience of the person that's on the fixer side of it. Some people naturally pick up control plane issues and Linux, and they're good with that. But then when it gets to the Kubernetes API side, they fall down. And then other people, the inverse of that. And um, so it doesn't. It can be the simplest break in the world, and simple in quotes, because obviously nothing is simple unless you know that it's simple. Um, but it's all down to serendipity as well. There's a lot of luck, and do you see the right error message? Because you know, I'm talking about conference fog in my brain, right? I can't tell you what I've ate or anything for the last two days. But when you stick a camera in, some, in someone's face and give them a broken Kubernetes cluster, there's just a life fog. Like you can forget everything that you've ever thought you've known because you know it's, it's hopefully not scary, but there is a there is a sense of pressure, and that kind of pressure can cause you to forget even the simplest things. So I love repeat breaks because I love to see how people approach them and how they kind of are different from what we've seen in the past. So I always tell people it doesn't matter if you repeat a break and we've seen it twelve hundred times because the fixing is what is important. It's the knowledge and the experience of the people on the other side of it that we want to transfer to the audience, not necessarily how do I break Kubernetes, because sure, people can take that away if they want, but it's the debugging, it's that understanding Kubernetes that we want to share. That is a good one. That is a good one. Um, I think I mentioned this to you before we started recording, uh, but I'm going to mention this now for um, everyone else listening. This episode was suggested by Andrew Welker, he suggested that we talked about cluster D and raw code and um, a couple of other things. So I can see the appeal of clustered beyond just Kubernetes because people are learning about different ways of solving tough problems that may be simple to some because they know the solution and really difficult to others that they wouldn't even know where to start. So I really like that appeal that there's way more than one way and the person's personality shows through and the person's experience and, you know, how they think. So I can see the appeal to that. But I'm wondering, where did the idea behind Clustered come from? And before that, maybe we should answer what is Clustered. Let's start with that. What is Clustered and where did the idea come from? Yes. So Clustered is a, a show that I have on my, my YouTube channel, so the Raw Code Academy. And the idea is that I provision some bare metal clusters and I give them to people to break. Now there's no, there's, there's a couple of rules. There used to be no rules. There's now a couple of rules. You have to make sure the cluster can be fixed. Obviously we don't want you just to give people the burnt out ruins of a car and say, good luck, drive home. <laughs> we, we want them to be able to try and actually get the application working. And the goal is really, really trivial. All you have to do is take a pod, which is running in the default namespace and update the image from V1 the V2. That's all you have to do. It sounds very simple. However, you're not always given a working Kubernetes cluster with a working API server, and there's a lot of things in Kubernetes. The API surface of Kubernetes is huge. Um, so if you want to find ways to stop that pod being scheduled or running or passing probes, there is many, many ways that you can uh, break that. So we give them the challenge, we get people to break it, and people fix it with me live on the YouTube channel. So that's what Cluster does. Now the idea, wow, uh, <laughs> it was a long time ago. During COVID, when I was starting to focus on my YouTube channel, I was talking to people at virtual events using all of these online platforms, Slack and Discord and Twitter, and I seen that there's a lot of really beginner-friendly content on Kubernetes, like how to deploy your first pod, how to do auto-scaling. But from the operational standpoint, the people are always looking for more resources and how to pass their CKA. That's the Certified Kubernetes Administrator training from the CloudNative Foundation. And I thought, well, I've done that test, and I know the format of it. Uh, you know, you, you actually get broken clusters and, you know, you pass the test if you're able to kind of get them working. And they give you some pseudo production-like outages, like renewing certificates and some, you know, some other stuff, maybe uh, doing an upgrade of a cluster from one version to another. 
And I always thought that there's a lot more to operating Kubernetes. And I've always worked with, with bare metal. I've worked for companies that have done Kubernetes for the last at least six years, always in a bare metal environment. I've never been able to take advantage of managed Kubernetes clusters. So I always just learned this stuff the hard way. Like uh, when we had outages, I had to go and debug it and fix it. And I thought, I wonder if we could just, I wonder if I could fix a broken cluster if I gave it to somebody. And I was talking to Walid, Walid Shari, who also does a lot of content um, via GitHub repositories on passing your CKA. And I said to Walid, would you join me on a stream and we're going to fix some broken Kubernetes clusters to try and show people how to pass the CK? And he agreed, solely, but we had a lot of fun. And we passed out the clusters to two people in the community. They broke it. And that format lasted for a little while. We have changed it since then. And it's just, yeah, that's kind of how it started. It was just a random idea about producing CKA material mm-hmm. and managed to talk someone else into it. And we took it from there. Now, the format has changed. What I found was the original format was I get two people to break it and one person joins me and we fix it as a team. But it's very hard to get people to come on and fix a broken cluster because, again, there's pressure and it's stressful and they don't want to look silly, even though I try to encourage people that, you know, there is no looking silly. We're, we're, we, we Google stuff all the time, right? Uh, that's one of the other like secret lessons from clusters that I love is that we want to kind of help set better norms in our industry. Like, I feel like we have this kind of hero culture in technology where we celebrate the people that know everything. Um, but really, we all spend a large chunk of our day just going, I don't know, I'm going to go find the answer. And I think experience is how quickly we find that answer. And I want people to share that on the stream. It's like, don't secretly Google off camera to find an answer. Just say, I actually don't know. And that's just how I go find the answer, whether that's Google or Stack Overflow or the Kubernetes docs. Let's, let's show people that because that's really valuable information. We want to show people how to get answers to questions that they don't know the answers for. So, yeah, a uh, really cool lesson from Clustered. Hey, friends, this episode is brought to you by my friends and potentially your friends, too, at Fire Hydrant. And I'm here with Robert Ross, founder and CEO of Fire Hydrant. And Robert, there are several options out there for incident management, but what is it that makes Fire Hydrant different? The reason that we think that Fire Hydrant is is onto something is because we're meeting companies really where they are. We face the same problems that every company in the industry that is building and releasing software is also facing. So where you want people to be able to sign up for Fire Hydrant and immediately be able to kick off an incident using the best practices that we've built and we've experienced and have gathered through the other amazing customers that use our tool. It really is a very quick time to value. And we want people to have a long jump from where they are to where they want to be in incident management. Well, we do have good news. Small teams up to 10 people can get started for free with all Fire Hydrant features included. There's no credit card required to sign up. They are making it too easy to get started. So check them out at firehydrant.com. Again, firehydrant.com. So one thing which I wasn't expecting Cluster to be in the beginning, and maybe this was, you know, part of the changes that the uh, that the series went through, was how much of a uh, group effort it is. People are encouraged to talk to one another, right? Like heckle one another, have fun. And that's what I think most people are missing. It's not about the problem. It's about coming together, solving problems that are maybe hard on the surface, but if you approach it, in a certain way, if you get the others involved, they can not only be easy, but also fun. And that is the one thing which I really enjoyed. Like, hey, this this is this is fun. Okay, it's supposed to be fun. It is fun, damn it, and it will be fun. So that is my <laughs> takeaway, you know? And um, I think the last one of the last episodes was like the community versus raw code. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> like, hey, like the community versus, like, like what? No way. So tell us a little bit about that episode. Yeah, but well, before I go into that, I'll, I'll tackle the first thing you said there. Um, yeah, it is supposed to be fun. It's the first thing I tell people before we go live. It's that this feels competitive. 
but it's not competitive. You know, feel free to taunt each other in a chat and, you know, leave little tips and have some fun with it. Um, but it's, it's certainly not competitive. Our, our one, our single mission on clusters is just to share how we debug clusters. So, yeah, I'm glad that it comes across as fun. It definitely is fun. And the audience is always super engaged. The other thing I tell people is pay attention to that chat because, again, you've got a camera in your face and you're staring at a broken cluster. You're not going to see the typos. It's just not going to happen. Your brain is too busy trying to work out what is going on. You're going to miss the simple things. And the chat is great for that. The chat have always got their eye on the ball. They see stuff that not even I see when we're looking at our broken clusters. So it's very collaborative. And uh, yeah, I love the way that we all kind of pull together. We're all written for each other and cluster. Nobody wants anyone to fail horrendously. We want people to succeed, but we want to have some fun in the process. Now, the community episode is definitely something we're going to do more of. Like I said, uh, it's hard to find people that are going to come on clustered because A, we just don't have a lot of people that have been operating Kubernetes for a long time. It's, you know, it's six, seven years old, but, you know, the majority of people are still new to Kubernetes. We're still seeing adoption of Kubernetes. We're not in that stage where everyone has been doing it for a long time. And it's scary. So I was looking for ways where, well, I still want to produce content so people can keep learning stuff, but I need to find a way to do it that doesn't rely on me finding, you know, two teams every single week or two individuals to join me. So we have done in the past, which was the Rockwood versus the community, which is where I just provisioned six clusters and literally put the cube config online and said, anyone that wants to go and smash this thing up, go for it. And I had no idea what they were going to do. Possibly the worst episode I ever done just for my own mental health, but definitely fun in the process uh, because <laughs> it was scary. I was the one that had to try and fix these things. And I thought, well, what, why don't we turn the tables here? Do we have the technology where I can break the clusters and I can invite anybody on to fix it? Unfortunately, I use Teleport for access to all of our clusters with GitHub authentication. So literally, I was able to go live on a stream and say, post your GitHub handle in the chat, and I'll add you to the cluster. And people were able to just join the session, and it has like a paving capability, so I could join and see what they're typing and show that on the stream. And I just had told people to dial in. And uh, I had a good number of people that were interested. I think we had eight people join in total. Uh, and they worked their way through a couple of the clusters. So that was, it's an interesting dynamic. I like that I was able to kind of flip it around and challenge people to come on. Uh, so yeah, it was a good fun. Who won? The community or raw code? Raw code won. I was, <laughs> Always. Uh, that, that last cluster was super, <laughs> super difficult. Um, there's, <laughs> I was very mean, um, and I'm never using this break again. But I wanted to, sh also I wanted to share something, right? Is that, with Kubernetes authentication, we have something called the Authentication Credential Helper. This is for cloud providers like AWS and Google and Azure, where they're using OpenID Connect, and they have to have a separate process outside of Kube Control that speaks to that service, identifies them, and comes back. However, there's no restrictions on what that credential helper does or what it is. So I compiled my own credential helper, which I conveniently called Metal Off Helper, so it kind of looked real. And what it did was return the valid credentials. But it also spun off a background job that went and destroyed the cluster every time they executed kube control. So <laughs> it was essentially, I did my own code execution through the authentication helper, and people just had no idea where the changes were coming from. So to get harsh. <laughs> wow, I think you must have a special brain to be coming up with these things. And I can imagine you in the shower because you don't have breakfast, I was thinking, hmm, what am I going to do next? I know. I'm going to delete the cluster as someone authenticates. Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> All right. Well, you know, most of my ideas come when I'm walking my dog. When I switch my brain off and I walk my dog, I always have random ideas for breaks. But I, I don't think that's the, the cruelest break we've seen. We had another break maybe four or five episodes ago, in the middle of the year. And what this contestant thought, I can't remember who it was. I feel really bad. Uh, it'll come back to me. I think it was John Anderson from Zapier. Mm. He spun up a new cluster on AWS on his own time, on his own account, but replicated all the node names and modified the cube config on my cluster to point to his remote cluster. So we spent the first 30 minutes debugging a cluster that wasn't our cluster, and we had no idea. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> okay. That's a cool shout-out. Now, talking about cool shout-outs, going back to our listener that suggested this episode, Andrew Welker, he's suggesting that we talk about Unicode in the context of Cluster D. And I'm sensing there's a good story there. I missed it. 
So what is the link between Unicode and Cluster D? Do you remember? Yes. I will never forget. <laughs> okay. Uh, remember how I said <laughs> Remember how I said there were no rules at the start and now there are rules? Well there is a no Unicode rule for a very, very good reason. I invited one of my friends. Um, he's a platform engineer at uh, Skyscanner in Glasgow. So we actually organized um, some local Glasgow user groups together, or we did it at one point. I know him very well. And I thought, yeah, you should come on and help us out. He's also the co-lead of SIG autoscaling in the Kubernetes project. So he knows he's Kubernetes. And I saw he would have some cool autoscaling breaks, and we'd, we'd see something nice and fun in a cluster. And this episode got to the point, I think we were about two and a half hours in, I, I was visibly exasperated. Like you could actually see me just <laughs> getting tired and fed up. I swore a lot. Which episode is this? Hang on, I have to watch that again. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I'll give you the link for the show notes. Thank you. you In the show notes, thank you. <laughs> but if you, if you. If you search for clustered Guy Templeton, it's the one uh, I was fixing it with Guinevere Singer, uh, also okay. from the Kubernetes release team. And at one point, I'm just like, Guy, I need to go pick up my kids and get them to bed. Can you please tell me what is wrong with this cluster? And he decided just to give us another hint rather than telling us directly. And he said, oh, the DNS config is, is wrong. So I've got an old cluster and in the current cluster, side by side, toggling between the tabs, looking at the same core DNS config file, and there's no change. I'm like, are you are you lying to me, guy? And it's like, this this is the same. And he he turned around and he said, "There's a few pixels different." And I think at that point, <laughs> I literally uttered the word "you mother" and um, table flip. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I think I know what this means. Um, and Core DNS is authoritative for Kubernetes.svc.cluster.local or um, for svc.cluster.local. So I stuck searching in Vim, and it doesn't come up. And I'm like, ah, that's weird. And it was because the C in cluster wasn't a C. It was a Unicode character that looked like a C. So none of the DNS in our cluster worked because it was resolving to some random domain, which was not the one that we were trying to speak to from our app to our database server. And um, ever since then, there has been the first rule of cluster is you're not allowed to use Unicode <laughs> in any config file. Now, it's, I also have a talk that I give. Um, called What I Learned Fixing 50-plus Kubernetes Clusters, and I always, always start it with the same video clip from that session. And it, it's just basically me swearing for 30 seconds as I jump <laughs> from scene to scene to scene, just to give people a bit of context. And about I can't explain how frustrated things were getting. Like, it was a long stream. So. Okay. But it was fun. I think it was enjoyable. I think people, they, they reference it because it's funny. So. So while we can't recreate that moment in the context of this episode in this podcast, I'll make sure to put the link in the show notes because it'll be fun to watch. <laughs> so not in your car, not with your kids, but uh, uh, when you have a moment <laughs> and you, wanna, you want to do something else, uh, that's, that's okay. That's a good one. Great story. Thank you for sharing. One last thing. Who won in Chainguard versus Chainguard? Chainguard. Yeah, there was a clustered <laughs> episode, Chain Guard versus Chain Guard. Who won? <laughs> so, yeah, that episode was serendipity as well. Chain Guard were, were lined up to compete against another team who unfortunately had to drop out because of um, a couple of members got COVID. And I really, I try not to cancel the episodes. And Chain Guard have been hiring wildly. Like, you know, they went from zero people to 50 people in a matter of months. And I was like, surely you've got enough people for two teams. And they were like, all right, okay. So we, we managed to get two teams from Chain Guard from Chain Guard. And that was an, another great episode as well. Um, it's just, it's fun, especially because it brought that dynamic of colleague versus colleague. Now, I say it's not competitive, but when you're kind of up against your, your teammates, you make it a little bit extra competitive. And I feel that it's a really good fun one to watch as well. Um, if I were going to recommend any other episodes, there's always two that I love to mention as well. There was one episode, again, complete serendipity, with Thomas Stromberg, who was a, an engineer at Google and maintainer for Minikube, so really strong Kubernetes knowledge, uh, and Chris Nova, mm -hmm. also famous in the Kubernetes community for their, their hacking and all the things that they do with Kubernetes clusters. And uh, 
Chris Nova did some kernel hacking and ABPF and recompiling Eclipse-C to hide processes. Really crazy stuff. But she was up against Thomas Stromberg, who had also done forensic analysis of intruder detection machines at Google. And he busted out LiftKit, took a snapshot of the disk and all changes for the last 48 hours. And I don't think anyone else on this planet would have been able to fix that cluster. And Thomas did. Um, which I always tell people, go watch that episode, because there is a lot of lessons to be learned from that. And I, actually, I keep meaning to write some of them up in a blog, but time is never on my side. But I always encourage people to go watch that episode. And another really good, fun one, if you want to see you know, teams enjoying it and not taking it too seriously, was uh, Red Hat versus Talos Systems. Um, they're now Sidero Labs, but the Red Hat team removed the executable bit from Chimod and Cube Control and Perl and a whole bunch of other utilities. And the Talos team actually couldn't execute any commands on the machine. Um, and I won't give away the fix on this because people might be sitting there thinking, how would you fix that? Um, either go watch the episode or um, kind of mm. Google the answer. But um, again, another episode where it's just light and fun, but you learn a ton in the process of seeing how cruel people can be with these systems. Yeah, that's a good one. Okay. So speaking about things which are broken and need fixing, should rawcode.academy, the domain, be working. Mm. <laughs> that, that was a face palm moment right there for those that are listening. So I am I am currently <laughs> building the Rockcode Academy website because, you know, I want to make my content more discoverable. So far, I've, I've relied purely on just word of mouth and YouTube's algorithm and people searching for Kubernetes content to find it. And I've only recently decided that actually I really want people to be able to Google for Kubernetes content and get results. And that means I need a website and building up SEO and trying to, I also want to do more with the content. And I started hiring people to type up show notes and do editing to condense the format down to like small viral, hopefully viral videos we can share on YouTube. So I'm starting to invest more time and energy into making the content uh, consumable to more people because it's quite hard to set aside 19 minutes or two hours for some of these episodes, and I appreciate that. But there's again, there's so much to learn from the way that people mm. handle these problems that I, I just want to be able to make it consumable in maybe like 15 minutes or 30 minute chunks for people that just want the, the highlights. So, and um, the Rocker Academy website is part of that. I have been building it, and it was online for couple of weeks um but i've also been migrating all of my dns and domains away from cloudflare so currently things are um, in motion but currently mm. very very broken okay where did you migrate to i know that we talked about that briefly on twitter you're asking about recommendations uh who did you choose for your dns so one of the constraints that I, I said to myself is if I'm going to move all my stuff, I want to be able to do it properly this time. And I want to configure DNSSEC um, and, you know, really make sure that things are secure. And I set all my DKIM and SPF records for mail delivery. Like, you know, it's, it's very easy just to set some MX records and hope that it works. But actually, there's a lot more that you need to do there. And for the domains where I don't receive email, I want to be able to actually set SPF records so that it's not used for spam. I don't think people realize how easy it is just to send email as any arbitrary domain on the internet. Like, it's not hard to send an email as Sergey at google.com. Very easy. Um, and these SPF records and DKIM records are how we are combat spam and other things. So I wanted to do it all properly. And that meant that I needed to set DNS up. A DNS setup is actually quite tricky. It usually involves a manual step because you have to have your domain registrar create a bunch of key. No, you have, you have to first have your domain, set the name servers on it, then on your name servers, set all of the key records and then propagate that public key back up to the domain registrar. So there's like mm -hmm. a chicken and egg problem almost. Yeah. And I actually moved all of my domains from Dynadot, which was my previous registrar, to Gandhi because Gandhi was the only API that supported patching the name servers without updating all the contact records and setting like a renewal price guarantee. And I'm like, no, I can handle that bit manually. I just want to automate the name servers. Um, so yeah, I did a massive migration to Gandhi, which had a Terraform provider. I then bridged that to Pulumi. So I published, and there's now a Pulumi provider for Gandhi that I published to the Pulumiverse. That allows me to patch all the name servers. I'm using Cloud DNS on GCP, which allows me to also has a Terraform provider, and we have a Pulumi native provider. So I'm using that to then create all of the 
DNS tech records, and then I'm patching that straight back up to Gandhi. So I have it all automated. It's all public on github.com slash rockcodeacademy. Um, there's a Rockwood Academy repository, a projects directory, and then my DNS automation there. So I'm really happy with it, actually. That's really cool. So I'm hearing Google DNS part of the Google Cloud, Google Cloud DNS, that's it. And Gandhi as a registrar for their DNSSEC uh, integration through the API. Yeah, they have a really strong API. Um, now, Dynadot did have an API, but it was XML-based. And I actually did write a Plumi provider for it. And then I realized, I'm just too old to be messing with XML anymore. They also have this really annoying rate limit. You can only have one request in flight at any one time per API token. And I was like, well, that's just not going to work. So, yeah, Gandhi seems to be very developer-focused. The API is great. It's JSON, REST-based. I'm super happy with it. There's also um, an open-source community called GoGandhi who are building a Go SDK for the Gandhi API and the Terraform providers. So being able to bridge that to Pulumi, I mean, it took me an hour. It's really easy to take a Terraform provider and expose it in Pulumi, which meant I could write TypeScript or Go code for all of my infrastructure. So yeah, the end result is is great. It's automated. And it means that if I ever did want to move my domains again, um, it's a lot easier. (laughs) Okay, so domains are taken care of. You have this, I think that there is a Raw Code Academy course coming on SPF, DKIM, DNSSEC, and all those things. <laughs> That's what I'm suspecting. Uh, what about the website? What about the Raw Academy website? So, yes, it's, it was hosted via Cloudflare Pages. Um, I'm now in the process of moving it to Google Firebase, which also offers static hosting with a CDN around the world. I get a very similar experience. But I haven't completed that part yet. Um, my plan is to do that tomorrow. I have a bit of time at the airport, and I, I like to kind of take on these these simpler kind of tasks that otherwise I probably just wouldn't prioritize. Um, so yeah, I'm going to move that over to to Firebase hosting and just keep things in, in Google as much as possible. Um, I also have a Kubernetes server that I run on Scaleway, which is my favorite managed Kubernetes provider. They let you change every single API server flag, and you know me, I love to to tweak and hack around um, and I haven't found any other provider that lets me do that so um, a lot of my automation I'm rebuilding on Temporal for my YouTube channel I don't know if we talked about this last time but my YouTube channel is automated like every single component of it like when I want a new episode it's a YAML file that I commit to get and then that change gets picked up it goes through some functions that go to YouTube schedule the event once the event is scheduled it generates a thumbnail it uploads it to YouTube Whenever I modify the description for a guest, it goes back and retroactively updates every YouTube description with their new details. Like the automation is really cool, but it's a bit dated now. I haven't I haven't been maintaining it for the last year. And while I've been at Plumi, the startup world is, is pretty fast paced. So I've not had as much time as I would like. Um, but I want to take some time now to redo that all in temporal, um, which is a really cool kind of workflow execution engine with state built in essentially like a fancy state machine with with actions so yeah i've got a lot of stuff and i've got a lot of course ideas yeah you're right showing people how i do a lot of this automation is something that i want to share and my plan is to to start a new um, weekly segment where i actually build out all the automation in public and show people what what i'm doing wow that sounds really interesting okay okay so you're shipping it like a pro that's what i'm hearing yeah, I mean, there's a lot of automation here and a lot of, you know, I'm using Dagger quite heavily now, which is replaced in my entire GitHub Actions workflows from start to finish. So, like, I'm just, uh, yeah, there's a lot of cool stuff here that I think uh, would be really useful and beneficial to people if I could show them it and show them how I'm working on it and changing it over time. So. Two thumbs up for me. <laughs> I, would, I would give more if I had, but I only have two, so they're both up. <laughs> Sounds amazing. So... I have a serious question. Is Raw Code Academy your path to the director or professor title? Professor Raw Code or Director Raw Code? <laughs> director of Raw Code Academy? <laughs> you haven't thought about it. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> well, I would have. Well, the Raw Code Academy is, is a, a registered company. So technically, I am the director of the, the Raw Code right. Academy. Um, director of content. <laughs> And courses and students. Yeah, I mean, uh, I 
don't think I can arbitrarily add professor to my title. I think I would need to go in, maybe go back to school. So I'm not going to do that. Um, but uh, I, I do want to invest a lot more of my effort into the Rockwood Academy. My, you know, my plan is for that to, you know, in five years' time, be what I'm working on full time. If I can get there quicker, then great. But I think realistically, it is probably four or five years out. Um, but I, I would just love to be in a position where I, I can work on these courses and make them available to people. I've done a lot of learning with courses over the last six months. You know, uh, I did a, a course on teleport, which is like 10 hours of live streamed workshops. Um, and I've been doing the same with, with BGP, um, showing people how BGP works because networking is hard and BGP is a superpower. So like, but I'm slowly realizing the video content, again, isn't maybe the best way to deliver a course. And this is where the Academy website's going to come in. It's like, how can I make things a bit more interactive? And again, I'm speaking to people at Instruct and saying, hey, can I build out something on this platform? And what does that look like? And this workshop that I'm doing in a few hours is, is a test of that model. And hopefully I can actually make these available online for anyone to just come along and when they make a decision, I want to learn Kubernetes. Is that I have the options of saying, well, you can go watch this course on YouTube. You can go into the interactive labs on Instruct. Or maybe you just want to read read article versions of it. And I want to make sure that the mediums are there to cater to anyone, depending on their learning style. So that will be a big focus for me over the next 12 months. Okay. Okay. That's a good one. Coming back to the titles, technically, I'm Lord Gerhardt. Technically, <laughs> because I have a small <laughs> plot of land somewhere in Scotland, which again, technically it makes me Lord Gerhard, but only in Scotland. Have you considered that? <laughs> Lord David. Lord David. Yeah, I actually, I have a friend who I won't name, who, uh -huh. who did something similar. They registered a plot of land to get a, a title and uh, they only ever use it when they book hotel rooms because they feel that they're going to get upgrades. And I don't know if that's true. I haven't challenged or asked them if that works regularly and um, um, but yeah uh, we have some very interesting laws in the UK where you can get these titles so i haven't considered it personally but i do think it's a good bit of fun it was a christmas present and not by myself to <laughs> myself <laughs> or like you know a friend you know thought it was funny and it is funny so is, 10 yeah. years later bam <laughs> the first time i've used it was in a ship it episode just to mention that i could but i never did <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well, you could also buy an acre on the moon and then you would be, you know, an interstellar lord. So maybe that's your next move is like yeah. to, go, to go universal. It is in the dagger future. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone should get like a plot on the moon that uh, joins dagger. That's a great idea, actually. I'll, I will propose it. <laughs> See what Solomon thinks about that idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, you'd mentioned the Raw Code Academy courses. I know there are three out already. You mentioned the BGP one. I'm yet to watch. I like the the red background makes it very serious, and it draws my attention between all that green. <laughs> that is uh, the Raw Code Academy. You have one on InfluxDB and Teleport. What other courses are you thinking about? Like you mentioned Kubernetes. That feels like a very big topic. Yeah, definitely Kubernetes. There's going to be more stuff coming. You know, working on this workshop using the lab-based platform kind of gave me a lot of ideas for how I can take real-world production issues and try and expose them to people in a way where they can work through it and debug them and see how that goes. So there's definitely going to be some variation of a clustered course available publicly um, pretty soon, probably within the next month or two. And really, I, I try to keep my courses relevant to what I'm working on, just so the information is, is fresh in my head. So there'll, there'll be content around building events driven systems with temporal uh, you know i'd love to do something with dagger and um, because i'm using dagger an awful lot right now so again it's the things that i'm using and finding interesting i'm like okay let's make this available to other people so i think once i start my streaming sessions weekly where I'm, i start to build out all this automation the courses will be a product of that where i start to condense that information down so you'll see courses on kubernetes you'll see courses on temporal you'll see courses on dagger and uh, i've been doing a lot more with thanos um, for metric collection and with uh, loki so something cool that I built recently was I built my own URL shortener okay. using edge functions. Really, really simple. Anyone can write that in like an hour. But what I wanted to do was make sure that I had really good metric collections. So the edge functions actually write out uh, structured logging in JSON format, which I 
publish to my Loki instance, and then I have some rules in Loki that generates metrics on an hourly basis based on the hits, so I can actually show how many people clicked on each of these links. And as I move towards the Rockwood Academy being a source of income for me over the next couple of years, then being able to automate reports with Grafana that sends them out to you know, um, my partners and sponsors, um, giving them the information that they need to continue to support me is really important. So uh, these, again, all these things that I'll be sharing with people are just driven by my own use case, but have much broader um, applications, hopefully. That's a really good idea because you're you're like living this tech. You're using it in different ways. It's always, it starts as like a real world implementation. You know, hey, I've used Teleport to solve this problem. You know, I could have used a few other things, but this one, you know, seemed to serve my needs best. And, oh, you know, Temporal, this is the problem that it's solving for me. And again, it's like, I really like that real world based approach because, you know, you can have fun with it. But then how do you transition from like those early learnings into doing something production-like, you know? And this is like, even if the Rockwood Academy doesn't work right now, we can do a ship-driven development that by the time <laughs> the episode comes out, it will work. And that will be a great story to share for sure. Well, there's my bold claim then, right? I will have the Rockwood Academy <laughs> website online before this episode ships. See, there you go. There you go. That's how that's how work gets done. <laughs> that's how, you know, commitments get made. Uh, but these are fun ones, okay? These are like not the, oh, you have to get it done. No, no. Uh, but it'll be a great story nevertheless. You're right. I mean, I am building a production system here, even though it's for my, for my own use case. And, you know, it's not going to have millions of hits. It's going to be modest traffic. But it is a real production application. And what I really love about it as well is that I'm using Pulumi for a lot of this. I'm actually driving product feedback back to Pulumi because I'm making Pulumi do things that maybe it wasn't supposed to be doing originally. And I'm building new providers and trying to integrate with new PIs. So I love that I'm able to join my kind of passion project, which is my academy, with my day job Pulumi, pushing these tools together and just showing people that, you know, you, you can bend the usefulness of applications to suit your needs and, and you in the same ways. Um, I really love that I was able to build the Pulumi provider for Dagger and just like have all of my workflows do Pulumi up inside of a container-based system and uh, be able to run them locally. So uh, it's, it's nice that my day job and my passion project allow me to drive both forward at the same time and produce feedback. Um, like we're doing some really cool stuff at Pulumi with Kubernetes. And I hope that my feedback on the stupid things I'm doing with Pulumi and Kubernetes is really helping make that easier for other people. So yeah, it's, it's very, I keep saying serendipity, but it is like I get to do both things at the same time and push both forward, which I love. That is a great combo. And speaking of which, have you seen other people do things that you weren't thinking of and that surprised you in a nice way with Pulumi, with, with Kubernetes, with all those integrations? Yeah, um, there's definitely some really interesting stuff that I see the community doing. Um, we started the Pulumiverse last year, which was like a neutral home on GitHub for um, Pulumi providers and community contributing code where we try and support them through automation and making it easier to publish the providers and the binaries. And we're seeing more and more people contribute there, which is great. With regards to what I see people doing weird with Pulumi, is that... I... Or interesting. Yeah, sorry, interesting, interesting. Interesting things I, I see people doing with Pulumi is using it as a replacement for Make, which has been interesting because they're using the new command provider, which can run local or remote SSH-based commands. And I, yeah, I see people using that in their local environments where they run a Pulumi up and it tries to do go build and then go install and then maybe build a container image and push it. So that's not something that I've considered myself with Pulumi, but I think it is an interesting use case. And I think that, you know, passing, showing that intern and sharing it internally with Pulumi gives them a bit of food for thought and like, all oh, right, okay, well, if people want to do this, can we make it easier for them? And again, we're driving that, that kind of product discussion around it. We're also seeing the Kubernetes operator being used in new and wonderful ways as well. Um, so, I mean, my use of the Pulumi Kubernetes operator is only to deploy to Kubernetes, but we're seeing more people deploy their cloud infrastructure in that environment. I think on the tails of what Crossplane are doing, people are like, oh, well, I could do that with Pulumi with the operator. Um, so they have their, you know, they, they can t attach the IAM identity from your pod within your EKS Kubernetes cluster to your AWS Cloud API, allow that to create S3 buckets, spin up functions, and really build, like, 
these really cool specific controllers for your own stack and your infrastructure inside of a Kubernetes cluster speaking to your cloud APIs directly. And it's a really novel pattern. Um, I love what Crossplane are doing as well. And I'm, I'm really excited to see people doing that with the Plumi operator as well. So I think those are really cool avenues worth exploring. This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. Sourcegraph is universal code search to let you move fast, even in big code bases. Here's CTO and co-founder Byung Lu explaining how Sourcegraph helps you to get into that ideal state of flow in coding. The ideal state of software development is really being in that state of flow. It's that state where all the relevant context and information that you need to build whatever feature or bug that you're focused on uh, building or fixing at the moment, that's all readily available. Now the question is, how do you get into that state where you know you don't know anything about the code necessarily that you're going to modify? That's where Sourcegraph comes in. And so what you do with Sourcegraph is you, you jump into Sourcegraph. It provides a single uh, portal into that universe of code. You search for the string literal, the pattern, whatever it is you're looking for. You dive right into the, the specific part of code that you want to understand. And then you have all these code navigation capabilities, jump to definition, find references that work across repository boundaries that work without having to clone the code to your local machine and set up and mess around with editor config and, and all that. Everything is just designed to be seamless and to aid in that task of you know code spelunking or, or source diving. And once you've acquired that understanding, then you can hop back in your editor, dive right back into that flow state of, hey, all the information I need is readily accessible. Let me just focus on writing the code that implements the feature or fixes the bug that I'm working on. All right, learn more at sourcegraph.com and also check out their bi-monthly virtual series called DevTool Time, covering all things DevTools at sourcegraph.com slash devtooltime. So, in the sea of choice that we have today, as if uh, the CNC of landscape was not vast enough, how would you recommend that people go about choosing what to use, whether it's Plumi, whether it's Crossplane, whether it's Dagger, whether it's because they all serve different purposes. And sometimes this is not obvious. People just don't know what to go with, like Teleport versus Tailscale. There's so many, like it's, again, it's a sea of choice. What would you recommend to people trying to make those choices for their production environments? That is a very difficult question. <laughs> I, I think you just have to, let's see if we could break it down into two rules, right? So first rule is just always pick Pulumi because I work there, I'm biased, and I'm going to encourage people to always pick Pulumi. Pick Pulumi, okay, that's it. First, number one. <laughs> number two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the second one is, you know, pay attention to the industry. You know, we get different types of, of customers. I, I don't know, developers, uh, teams, organizations. If you're risk averse, then you always have to track what the community is doing, right? And that, that's going to mean following the projects that are CNCF um, incubating or graduated projects because you know you're going to have a support lifecycle with neutral ownership and, and vendoring, and there's a lot of resources out there. Um, now, it could be very easy for less risk averse teams that are very curious. I, I put myself in that camp. You know, I see new technology. I'm like a magpie. I have to go and play with it and keep the tires on it and see what it does and how it's different. Um, and you may find that there are better technologies that are more esoteric, but they're going to be lacking in community support and documentation and tutorials. Um, and you really need to drive those things forward. Um, so it depends where you are on that risk aversion scale. Um, I think it's a safe bet to go with CNCF projects, you know, use Prometheus, use Thanos, use Argo CD, use Crossplane, because they will be supported and they've got very active and healthy communities. Now, other projects will have healthy and active communities. We still have the Apache Foundation, and you may find that you want to go down that route. If you're a JVM shop, again, you're going to have ties closer to that. So I don't have any great advice, but just understand where you are on that scale and then stick to the communities that fits your own stack. Because you're going to understand how things work. You know, a, a Java company switching to a CNCF stack might be difficult because it's all Go-based and things that we do in the Go ecosystem are very different. And they may want to stick with the Apache Foundation. I don't know. Very tough question, but I love it.
<laughs> that is very solid advice, I have to say. Very solid advice. Thank you. Uh, definitely helpful for people that struggle. I know that many do because of the choice. There's just like, so what do I choose? If you have two things to choose from, it's easy. One, oh, not that one and the other one. But it's not that simple, right? You could just end up choosing all the time and not settling on anything. So how do you find something <laughs> that, you know, you feel, okay, this is me. I'm here. I'm setting up camp here. What needs to happen for you to get to that point? Feel that, yep, this will do me. Well, yeah. I mean, let's look at two examples there, right? Because I think they, they highlight this problem very well. One of them is you want to pick a time series database. You've got many options. Uh, Apache Kudo is one that is available from the Apache ecosystem. If you're in the CNCF ecosystem, we don't just have Prometheus. We've also got M3 and we've got Thanos and we've got uh, Cortex. And there's the new one from Grafana. I can't remember the name. Apologies, Grafana folks. But they're all very similar and they're all Prometheus derivatives. So how do you make that decision? Like you do have this impossible decision. And then, of course, if you move out of those two ecosystems, there's InfluxDB and there's Timescale and there's, you know, I'm sure there's a, a couple more. And they're all great projects and they're all worthy of adoption but they all come with their, their, their challenges so yeah i don't know how people make that decision and um, very very tricky one um, obviously prometheus and sticking within that api you can transfer a lot of knowledge and um, but the operational aspects of cortex and thanos and empathy are all very different and um, then there's you know the streaming ecosystem we're seeing a lot more event-driven stuff in the cncf and again if you're in the apache ecosystem maybe you want to go with, with kafka um, if you're in the cncf ecosystem you're probably going to be more attached to nats however we have a new contender called red panda which is delivering phenomenal stuff with a kafka compatible api but written in c plus with a wasm engine but you may want to go for something that's battle tested and that could be rabbit mq so again how do you make that decision and I think it's tricky for everyone. I mean, I think between us, we have a lot of experience here and I still struggle to make some of these decisions. So hopefully other people don't spend too much time on it and just try and pick something that leans into their ecosystem and works for them. Yeah. I'm all for making small steps in a direction that seems right and never commit to getting there. And that means, no, I will use that. You, you can't start like that. You say, I'm going to try this. It's close to what I'm doing today. It's, it won't change everything because those things are very expensive, right? When you start changing 90 degree course corrections. So try making, you know, very small, steady changes of direction and see if it's better or not. What is your fitness function? That's what I would say. Like, how do you know if the change that you're introducing is a good one? And maybe focus on that so that you can answer, yes, this is better. No, it's not better. Let's just like, you know, very gently go in a different direction. And you should never make the big migrations because I think it's a very expensive way of learning and the risk is super high. So you should be making smaller learnings and then smaller adjustments because too big is just too much risk. And I think even with us, like you can end up your whole time just picking things and learning about things, but never really using anything. So how does David make the choices for his production that need to stick for a couple of years? David, that is in the thick of it all. You know, I think that is an inspiring one to watch. At least it was for me, and it is for me. Yeah, I think, you know, really sound advice there, but making sure that you're taking small steps and not doing any big migrations, those never pan out, right? We know this now, and I think this is why we're seeing new architectures emerge, you know, microservices and event-driven architectures really do give you the flexibility or portion adapters, whatever ecosystem you come from, they name it all a little bit different. But these allow you to be more flexible with these decisions as well. When you start having very loosely coupled and um, systems that are event-driven on a bus of some sort. I mean, you can even replace the bus. You stick a proxy in front and you write it to two buses. And then those buses have different subscribers and you can start to replace those subscribers and or even duplicate them in some way. And as long as they all have their own data store and you're not making that cardinal sin of writing everything back to a single data store, you do have that flexibility to be very agile in the way that you try out these systems and go, all right, we're actually going to run M3, Thanos, and Cortex for a month, and we're going to see which one gives us the most operational pain, and then drop the other two. And then it's very easy with that architecture to be able to do that. Um, we're also seeing a split or a divide, I think. You know, there's a lot of companies that are just going all in on a particular cloud and using every managed service in the world. And then there's the other side, which is the Kubernetes ecosystem. I'll do everything agnostic. Uh, and I'm curious to see how that pans out in a few years as well. 
I mean, the cost of all these managed services on cloud providers is extortionate. I, I, I personally could never justify it, but maybe I've just not been lucky enough to work for a company that's got the budget to be able to do that. Maybe, maybe that would be the simpler life. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Okay. Okay. So I'm thinking in about conferences. That's how we started. And that's how we are gently ending. Uh, you're at Container Days right now, just about to start your workshop. Hopefully, I got you relaxed and thinking about other things other than your workshop. <laughs> Hopefully. You'll tell me how it worked in practice. Uh, what other conferences do you have coming up? So I have a couple more, and then that'll be me finished um, traveling for the year. I try not to travel in November and December. Um, however, I do have OSMC in Nuremberg in November. That's the Open Source Monitoring Conference, where I will be showing people how to provide a rich developer interface to Prometheus custom resources. So using Polymer. I think one of the superpowers of Pulumi is that I, I love Pulumi TypeScript. Is that we have this a wonderful type system that works with our language server protocol and our editor of choice, meaning you can tab your way through all of these resources without ever really knowing what you what they look like. And I think that's wonderful. So I want to share that with that community and, and do more with with Prometheus. I also have NDC Oslo in two weeks' time where I'm doing my What I Learned Fixing 50 Broken Kubernetes Clusters talk. So that's mm-hmm. going to start off with that wonderful two or three minute video of me crying and swearing um, and then sharing the, the high level knowledge transfer that I personally got from clusters. So that's looking at what I've learned about the Linux operating system, what I've learned about the networking stack, what I've learned about eBPF and how I kind of structure that learning and how I can share that with more people. I I really love giving that talk. I think it's fun, it's light, and it also, again, I'm all about sharing knowledge with with, with people. Mm -hmm. Okay. What about the one in Edinburgh? We missed one. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot my own conference. Uh, Yes, yes, people. David has his own conference and he forgot about it. So make sure you show up. (laughs) It's going to be great. (laughs) Well, well, I'm not not speaking at it. So it just just left my mind. But yeah, um, I'm organizing Cube Huddle. So this is a very community-focused Kubernetes conference in Scotland. It's uh, October 3rd and 4th in Edinburgh at the Edinburgh International Conference Center. So I'm, I'm really excited. We've got 28 speakers um, coming to share their knowledge. And uh, when I started planning it, I, I only really had one idea. I mean, it started with a tweet. Let's just get that out of there. Um, I tweeted, there should be a conference, a Kubernetes conference that's community-focused in the UK. And then literally three days later, I had a venue booked. And I was like, oh, crap, this is happening. So I've had to learn how to organize a conference. Um, it's been really hard. But I'm really excited and really, really happy with what we've delivered. And what my main idea at the start was it has to be a two-track conference because I want this conference to, one, have a track that caters to people that have never seen Kubernetes before. I think that's really important. And I have to remember, even though it's not my own personal content that I want to see, is that 80% of our community are between numbers that I'm throwing out there. But 80% of our community is new to Kubernetes. We're still very early in that adoption cycle. But the other track what's going to cater to the other 20%. So these are talks that are advanced or at least intermediate towards advanced because I want to be able to attract Kubernetes contributors. In the UK and Ireland and Europe, there are a lot of people that are working on Kubernetes daily. And I don't think that other Kubernetes conferences are a great place for them to go and share ideas because they're so big that they always cater for the 80%. Um, so we have a track dedicated to these hard things as well. Um, and I'm really lucky. We do have a lot of Kubernetes contributors coming in, and I'm looking forward to be able to give them a, a venue and a place where they can sit and share ideas about what what's next for Kubernetes and how do we drive the project even more forward because it's, it's fast-paced and changes are happening, and I think we need to provide the forum and to speed up those discussions. So I'm very excited. It's going to be great. Um, you're presenting as well Mm -hmm. so i'm really looking forward to seeing you in person again and and again to say hello Uh, and we have a lot of other great speakers hang on hang on i have to do david oh crap i'm presenting no way i have to do my talk damn it (laughs) how long do i have david (laughs) 26 days not that i'm counting that's plenty that is plenty that is plenty okay (laughs) i have time i have time I forgot about that conference, damn it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I was going to say we have the brightest and best minds in the Kubernetes ecosystem joining us. Not me, no. <laughs> Since I forgot about it, obviously. <laughs> right. Okay, so what I want to know, again, I think this could be possibly the last question, is can we get Caleb 
on ship it this year because last year we couldn't. Uh, he was three weeks old, and I know that because uh, it was KubeCon North America. So can he talk so that uh, we can get Caleb on ship it? Hey, he's got a few words. I'm you know very mm -hmm. proud to say that he is saying dada. He can say ta, and he can say mama. So he's going to be one in two weeks' time. Um, he's just started walking, which is super scary because <laughs> once they start walking, they, they have mobility, and they can reach and grab things and all sorts. That's how it starts. <laughs> the words will be coming thick and fast soon. He's definitely exploring and testing a lot more new sounds and, and words and, and stuff. So, yeah, I'm sure we'll be able to get Caleb on at some point to say hello. Mm -hmm. We can just get him to say hello, you know, with our Dada. Uh, Kubernetes would be amazing if you could make him do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once I get home, I'll spend a few days. Or just ship it. Ship it is enough. I'll, I will ship settle it. for that. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> ship it. Okay, very important. <laughs> All right. I will work on Kubernetes and ship it. Whatever he says first, I'll get you a, a recording and you can just patch it in. But there you go. That'll be amazing. That'll be amazing. Okay. So uh, what I want to say is good luck uh, for your upcoming workshop. Uh, I hope there will be a recording of it so that we can share it. Thank you very much for joining me today. Um, it Again, these are getting better. These conversations are getting better. I think, I think both of us are having so many of them that we are improving. I think that's what's happening here. <laughs> We're getting better at talking. <laughs> All right. Well, I think you bring out the best in people. So you're definitely, <sighs> you're helping me out. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate that. I'll take that as, as a great compliment. So thank you, David. I look forward to speaking to you the next time. And um, keep it light, keep it fun. You're doing a great job. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Ship It. Check out our other podcasts for developers at changelog.com slash master. You can connect with like-minded developers via changelog.com slash community. Thank you Fastly for the worldwide low-latency changelog.com. Our listeners love those blazing fast MP3s, where Firecracker VMs and WireGuard integration are really sweet for I.O. That's it for this week. See you all next week. And if you happen to be in Edinburgh next week at Cube Huddle, I hope to see you there. I will have some dagger stickers with me, so definitely stop for those. <laughs>